Hey everyone, welcome to this special episode of Real Talk Let's Talk. Today we wanted to have a conversation to help unravel some of the events that are going on around us in the world right now. We are really excited to have speaker Dr. Michelle Prettyman with us today. Dr. Prettyman is a professor at Mercer University in the Department of Journalism and Media Studies. She is a scholar of film, media, and African-American film and visual culture. Her work has been presented and published in diverse forums, including the Collegium of Black Women Philosophers, the Society for Cinema and Media Studies, and the Transforming Public History Conference. Thank you so much, Dr. Prettyman, for being here today with us, and especially for helping us start this conversation on our platform. But before you begin your talk, we wanted to ask you a few questions to get to know you some more. So to begin, I have an extremely serious question. What do you prefer, (laughs) cake or pie? That is so easy. It is pie and <laughs> resent the question. There should not even be a question. It's pie. <laughs> What's your favorite type of pie? Oh my gosh, that's an ongoing thing in my house. I mean, it's blueberry season, so maybe blueberry right now, but I love apple and every pie is, is my favorite. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so my second question is where or in what do you find your greatest joy? Well, um, I'm a believer in sort of thinking and trying to live in the moment. Um, And so what that means for me is that um, during COVID, I started walking uh, at Emerson River Park every single morning. And um, nature has been a tremendous respite for me. Um, I've always loved nature, um, but during this particular time, it, it brings me tremendous joy. So nature would probably be the answer. Oh, that's so beautiful. And I think it also gives you a nice sense of routine, too. It does. Yeah. Thank you. So my question is, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? Boy, this is this is the hardest one that, you know, you guys kind of gave me the preliminary take on your questions. Um, This is the hardest one. Um, You know, part of me would love to say something fun and lighthearted, like, you know, just the power to have amazing clothes and look amazing every day. (laughs) Um, But, you know, in a real way, you know, I I wish that I could sort of transform um, our world landscape um, from certainly the violent and and the brutal to one of of love and care. So um, maybe I could be fashionable as I was doing that. (laughs) You could maybe you could have the superpower to do two things, two powerful (laughs) things at one time. (laughs) And my last question is, if you could have dinner with anybody fictional or non-fictional, who would it be and why? So I'm going to give two answers. I'm breaking all the rules already. I know, but I'm going <laughs> to give two answers. Um, one is um, a lot of my work um, explores the life and the films of a woman named Kathleen Collins, who actually married my uncle some years ago. She was the first Black woman to make a feature film And she died in 1988 when I was 18 years old. Um, So I would love to be able to talk with her. Um, But I guess my second one um, would probably be Maya Angelou. I mean, just someone that I think um, I've listened to and, and, you know, read her books. and, And I think she would be someone that her wisdom would be just, you know, tremendous. So I think those are my two, if you'll allow me to, because I gave two because I didn't think people would have heard of my first one. So Maya Angelou is the more recognizable one. So that's why I gave two. I love them. Thanks. (laughs)
Well, thank you so much, Dr. Prettyman. Um, so the title of her talk is, I didn't ask for any of this, navigating the pandemics of COVID and racism, whenever you're ready. Okay, thank you. I'm just going to pull up my notes here. Um, so uh, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to speak to Mercer students. What you may or may not know, and I feel a little bit bad revealing this for some who don't know, is that um, I'll be leaving Mercer after my summer session two classes. Um, and I've taken a job at another university and I'll start there in August. Um, so as you can imagine, um, this is a really challenging time um, for me to leave Mercer during these really difficult times and, and more importantly, not to be able to um, say goodbye to students, to hug students and my colleagues. So it's really been quite a challenge uh, to leave under these circumstances. Um, and in my four years at Mercer, I've, I've just had an extraordinary time. Uh, I've loved every moment of it and I hope that I've left something behind. Um, so um, in the fall of 2019, um, before I knew that I was leaving Mercer, before COVID, before the massive outcry against racial, racial injustice, um, I gave a talk that um, I was really quite proud of and I, I really had a wonderful time doing it and talking with students afterwards, afterwards. And it was called From Keeping It Real to Keeping It Authentic. And in that talk, I encouraged students to pivot from perceptions of honesty and authenticity to really living out their truth. And, my main, I guess, goal at that time was to help all of us discover and become more familiar and more comfortable with our authentic selves. But as I prepared for this talk, I wondered, in light of where we are as human beings and having been confronted now with life, death, and social upheaval, unlike anything we've seen in the last century, what does authenticity look like or feel like now? And is it even a relevant principle in this moment? And so today, thinking about this sort of this notion of authenticity and also thinking about this notion of uh, what I said at the top, this notion of I, don't, I didn't ask for any of this, right? That none of us is prepared for what we've experienced and we certainly didn't ask for it. But I wanted us to think about this space in between feeling aggrieved, feeling sorry for ourselves a little bit, and rightfully so, grieving the things that we might have lost, um, grieving things like not being able to graduate, uh, maybe not being able to travel, not being able to start your first job, or whatever it was that you had planned to do. And now, sort of getting our legs underneath of us, getting our footing again, and realizing that while we didn't ask for this, this is what it is. This is what the world is, this is where we are. And hopefully we can not just learn from it, but really confront it in a way that maybe three or four months ago, we might not have been prepared to do. Um, so in the fall, I defined authenticity as a space beyond boundaries, um, beyond the real, right? We, we think of realness as kind of 
the height of authenticity. Um, but I want us, wanted us then and even now to move beyond this notion of doing everything right to really figuring out how we can confront a world that is in flux. And I'm, one question that I sort of have for young people is I wonder how you are processing this. And for example, I have cable television, okay? And when COVID first hit, and then later when the protests and the violence, and, and I'm thinking of violence here, not as burning and looting, by the way. I wanna be crystal clear. That for me is not violence. I don't agree with burning and looting. No, I don't agree. I don't think it's productive uh, and I don't think it's necessary. But the violence that I am talking about is the violence against human beings, right? So I wanna be crystal clear about that. Um, but when we noticed, and I started to see an uptick in police violence before George Floyd, we started to see um, those of us who were sort of tracking and who are always sort of tracking what is happening to the lives of black people, to the lives of vulnerable people. Um, we started to notice some things and then we got hit with this wave, um, a series of murders against black bodies against trans folks. Um, and that has, again, sort of, it, it's the next wave, um, so to speak. And I guess my point here is, as we start to get our footing, what is it that we should be thinking about in terms of assessing ourselves in terms of reevaluating goals, reevaluating relationships, reevaluating our position in the social order. Because what we've seen over the last few weeks is that people have been prompted to reevaluate just that, their position in this social order, and to realize that the social order is not something that is rigid, but it is something that is always in flux. And I'm not sure that folks who are under 30 realized that, that this is not a fixed social order. We are all changing it and pushing it and holding it accountable and rejecting it and trying to help it reboot and recalibrate and restart. Um, and I guess, for me, you know, and ideally this would be a dialogue because there are so many things that I don't know about the audience of listeners that I'm speaking to. I don't know if you realized the extent of how racism and oppression operate. You might've heard people say, it's, it's been a commonly circulated thing to say that the system is actually working as it was designed and that's actually true, right? The systems of law enforcement, uh, the systems of policing, the systems of incarceration, the systems of poverty, the systems that keep these things in place are very old, but are by design. They didn't sort of just one day go wrong or, oh no, there's something that's, that's suddenly happening that's making these things malfunction. This is the way they were designed to work. And many people are waking up to that. Um, and so here... Let me jump to coronavirus for a moment quickly. Again, as an ongoing construct, I think this is now. We're hoping that cases go down, deaths go down. We're hoping, again, that, that life retains 
some of what it was before. I don't know that we want to retain everything from before. But I, I want us to think about it as something that is ongoing, not that the virus is ongoing, but that the mindset that it might sort of recalibrate in all of us may be ongoing. Um, so there were some things that we needed to learn, right? As we went through COVID, as we navigated quarantine, as restrictions have been lifted, um, I don't want us to think about this in terms of stages, though. We, we were quarantined and then, you know, stages were lifted. I want us to think more so about what it was that we should learn as a result, that all people deserve quality health care that's not attached to a job. You see, many of us find ourselves in vulnerable positions in terms of our health care or, or coverage, but did we vote um, or support policies or support candidates who wanted everybody to have health care or didn't we, right? So it is this kind of reckoning with how we have used our political power. We should now know, there should be no doubt that every human being should have health care that is not attached to a job. Meaning if I'm employed, I'm unemployed, I'm underemployed, no matter what status, what station in life I find myself, I should have health care that's affordable, available, and accessible. And again, these were policies that we've been thinking about as a country for decades. But again, in the wake of COVID, whether your insurance was impacted or not, we should be thinking differently about these things. We should be thinking differently about people who perform services in our, in our society, whether it's trash, trash disposal, disposal or cleaning things or uh, driving us around in Ubers or buses or trains or flying us on planes, people that cook our food, pre prepare our food, people that allow us to even buy groceries and get certain services. All of those people we've now deemed essential, but we should have done that before. They were always essential. We just didn't pay attention to it, right? And perhaps most of all, we've reckoned with educators and healthcare workers, right? And people whose services we knew were important, but now this has all thrown, hopefully, a clarity and an illumination on those folks and what they do. But again, the question is, will we move forward having forgotten what we learned or will we now vote and advocate for policies that ensure that these people are compensated and have the resources they need to do their jobs correctly, right? I'm not sure that we've learned these lessons though. I'm not sure that we've learned that when one of us is in danger, when one of us is harmed, when one of us is sick, it affects all of us. It did before COVID. That was always true, but I'm just wondering if we really fully understand that now. And maybe most of all, we should have learned that when we move with love, with care, and with purpose, we can accomplish a lot. But when we decide not to do that, when we decide to go our own way, again, we're all affected. Um, I guess the final thing I'll say about COVID that I think, and Hopefully you can see that all of this transitions also to the second pandemic 
um, that I've spoken of that you're aware of. But fundamentally, if we've not learned that what we thought was normal was really quite abnormal, that we had gotten used to some people being without. We had accepted that some people were underpaid and underworked. We had accepted that uh, teachers, uh, and I think even law enforcement is underpaid. And that's a whole other conversation that hopefully at Mercer you will continue to have. What will law enforcement, what should law enforcement look like going forward? But the point is, are we ready to go back to normal or, or are we ready to create a new normal that addresses the things that we should have learned? And so I ask us again, as we recalibrate, as we get our footing, as we hopefully assess where we are as individuals and where we are as a society, that we really take the time to address these issues and that you realize that, again, it's not going to happen if you don't. It's not going to happen if we don't, right? Um, I think as young people, sometimes you think of government and you think of adults and other people somewhere who are supposed to do this stuff. Hopefully we've learned now that that's not the case. Um, I want to come briefly now to this second wave, this second pandemic here. And it's not that racism started then or brutality started then, we know that. But this second wave of consciousness that I think we are all being called to task, called to address and to see. Um, as we look back on the weeks of violence and even the situations with people calling police on black people and in their own homes, in their own backyards, you know, at local parks, even those kinds of things, hopefully, which I don't think we should call microaggressions anymore, right? They, there's nothing micro about the ways in which power has been leveraged against people in public spaces, but that's a big deal. What I want us to think about is not just how we can impact those things. Yes, ultimately, yes. But really, for me, it always starts with me. Life starts with me. It starts with you. It doesn't start out there in some other place. It doesn't start with holding social um, infrastructural systems accountable. It always starts with me, right? and the ways in which I am willing to take an honest assessment of what I know, what I don't know, of how I feel, of how I've acted, of how I've behaved, of how I've looked at things. Um, and I think every human being has to do that. Um, there's been lots of conversation around certainly Black Lives Mattering and what that means um, and who we're talking about when we say Black Lives, right? I noticed, um, a lot of athletes, you know, have, have been sort of awakened and, and they're now invested. But is that true for trans people, for women? Is it true for any part of this sort of demographic of blackness? Is it true for everybody, right? Do we rally? Do we support? Do we grieve the loss of, of everyone? Um, and I think I, I'm really glad that I think athletes have sort of 
again, just as one small demographic, as one small case study, because I, I do think it's interesting what's happening in sports communities and with NASCAR and, you know, but I guess I would always want us to, to be careful to not only care when it affects us seemingly, right? When there is uh, a man that's affected, sometimes folks rush in, or when there's a woman that's affected, sometimes other folks will rush in, but that we can see that this is, this is about every single life, every single life here. Um, you know, I, I kind of want to wind down a bit and, and open it up for some questions, but I guess to, to tie up some things here, um, my scholarship, my academic work, my public work, none of what I do is about convincing people about what to do or what to feel or what to believe. I think that's just a problematic approach to convince people of what's right or wrong or, or even to make people feel guilty or to persuade you to do something. I'm not into any of that. But the only thing that I would offer is that life lived through each of us is demanding something from us. And it's not up to me or to your parents or to your professors to figure out what that is. That is your charge, to figure out what life demands from you. And not life as some far off entity, but the life that is lived right here in you, through you, as you, around you. That life is for you to discover, for you to explore, for you to confront. And I think that's what I'd want to leave you with here today. We all, I think, feel a certain amount of pressure, not just to achieve personal things, but to now reshape the world that we're all a part of. But I don't want you to internalize it as pressure, but just as part of being a more evolved and conscious human being. This is part of what life is. We didn't ask for any of it, but this is what it is. And this is a charge that I think we're all, um, we're all compelled to take up this charge. So thank you and uh, I'll have questions now. Thank you so much, Dr. Prettyman. I think what you said about this mindset and everything that we're going through right now is really important to hear because as a young person right now, I've dealt with so many of those questions that you just posed on things that we really need to ponder and think about and confront for ourselves. And I think like your take on it and realizing that you know, none of this we asked for, but it's something that we're going to have to face and something that we need to, as a community, as an individual, you know, find out about ourselves. And I think that I really appreciate that you came and, and talked with us today, because I think that a lot of us needed to hear that. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Um, actually, we asked the Real Talk community on Instagram for a couple of questions um, that they had for you. And we just wanted to ask you some of those that we got from people. Um, mm -hmm. The first one is from Marika, and she asks, how are you feeling? And what are some ways that the world has really stopped for you? Wow. Well, I appreciate that. Um, I, let me add um, kind of as an addendum to her question. Um, one great strength that Mercer students have is what we just hear in this question. The first thing she asks is, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Mm -hmm. um, and whenever I think about Mercer students, that's what I remember, that that's the first thing that comes to mind is there is this very sort of human approach to all of this. So I really appreciate that question. Um, I'm doing well. Um, 
it's been a journey. Like, it, I mean, can, can we even chart the last three months? It's ups and downs and um, even silly things like watching certain shows and certain films and eating certain food and um, building certain kinds of virtual relationships. So I, I'm doing well. Um, what was the second part of the question? I know there were two parts there. Um, she was asking, what are some ways that the world has stopped for you? Oh, um, the ways the world has stopped. I don't know if it's really stopped. Um, in some ways, um, relationships I had that were based on sort of tactility and proximity and being able to touch someone and, and be in a coffee shop, those things have been probably the biggest challenge for, for most of us, right? Mm -hmm. But I guess on the other hand, you do learn how to redefine intimacy and, and, you know, how to rediscover it even when we can't be, you know, in the same room. Um, I have a son that lives not far from me at all, but we haven't hugged in months, right? So it, those things stopped, but I think there is an awakening of a different kind of intimacy that, that also allows some real possibilities that we probably didn't even realize were there, so... I'm kind of curious, um, what ways have you had to redefine um, intimacy for yourself? Yeah, well, it is this notion of tactility and proximity, right? If I can't hug you, if I can't kiss you, if I can't be in the same room with you, then what do we do? How do we show, how, right? How do I now show you that I love you? If before I would hug you, what do I do now? Do I call you more frequently? Do I want to look at your face? Do I want to FaceTime you more? So it's just getting us to think about what mm -hmm. intimacy is. And one of the things that I said to my oldest son, um, because I'm going to move in like six weeks, I said, well, um, he, he would keep saying, I'm going to miss you. And I would say, but I'm not gone. Right. So it's this notion of what is intimacy? Where is it? Is it being in the same space? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I had a student whose parents are in India, like, right? So it, the distance and the way that we measure intimacy is about proximity. And I think that's all wrong, right? Yeah. We needed to measure it that way from the very beginning. Her parents are always with her, always. Even in death, we know that there is this energy that continues. So just getting us to think and sort of rewire ourselves differently to say that, wait a minute, we don't have to be here to be present. Mm -hmm. We don't have to be in the same. So just thinking through those things. I don't know. Wow, I've <laughs> never thought of it like that. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah, well, I just wanted to thank you again for um, giving an, such a great talk. And we have another question from Chance, and he asks, mm -hmm. how do you keep faith in a time where your spirit can be tested in multiple ways? Oh, my Chance. I know Chance. Um <laughs> Chance, this is like a dissertation. It's books. It's th there's little answer I can give you here that would satisfy that question. But what I would say is that that's that's one of those eternal cosmic questions we have to continue to ask. Um, what do we have faith in? Really, like what do we have faith in? Do we really have faith in love? Do we really, many of us say that, I don't know if we believe it. Do we really have faith in education? Do we have faith in community? Do we have faith in government? What do we really have faith in? So 
all of these questions are so valuable because they feel rhetorical in a way, right? It feels like this is a question we've been asking forever. But if we take the time to sit with the question, there is something underneath of that, right? And so I don't, for me, I know I said to my students, and <laughs> when we went into online learning, and I missed my students so much. And then when I would see their faces, you know, we, we realized, I think, all of us in higher education, how much love is at the root of our pedagogy. We love each other. I'm going to cry. <laughs> we love each other. And so if that is what undergirds your life, live it that way. Don't put love to the side and think, well, this is college or this is career or all of these things are separate. They're not. And they're meant to be lived with what we really value. So Chance, again, thank you very much for making me cry. But <laughs> these are big questions that I want you guys to really wrestle with. And if anything is to be gained out of these experiences, if you live your life the same way, shame on you. You're not meant to live the same way. You're meant to reevaluate what you have faith in, what's important to you, who's important to you, right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah so, oh gosh, what's the next question? <laughs> Take a deep breath. <sighs> but I mean, that's the raw emotion. I mean, that's exactly how you feel. And I'm glad. I'm glad that you're being honest and telling it the way it is because love really does transcend everything else. It does. And it needs to be said because that's the most powerful force we have right now. It I think. is. Yeah. Oh, well, wow. we do have a question from a few other people. Okay. Um, this one's a little bit less uh, emotional, I hope. <laughs> but Andrew was wondering, do you expect other world leaders to chime in on the issues here to, mm. or offer help? Mm. Well, that's been an interesting thing. Um, one country that has really, I think, risen to the forefront um, is New Zealand. I don't know if you've paid attention to just the ways in which they have navigated this. Other things, when they had a mass shooting months ago, they just handled this totally differently than oh, yeah. other larger countries have handled this more I don't know, I don't want to call them more notable, but countries that we're more familiar with. Um, so I think this is, again, this is a litmus test for leadership, mm, folks. Definitely. Watch who's, who's really leading. Who's really leading? And leading means what? How do we define leadership? I don't even want to fill in the blank. You have to sort of ask yourself, well, what does leadership really look like in this moment? Mm -hmm. We know exactly who's leading and exactly who's not. We know. We don't <laughs> play any games. We know who's leading and who's not. And we know, again, to the previous question, whose leadership is grounded in care and commitment to larger values that we all share, or at least we say we share. So mm -hmm. um, I think this is a litmus test. Locally, it's a litmus test. Certainly nationally, internationally, but out of this, we get lots of information about the leaders that we want to support and the policies we want to support and the kind of leaders we want to be. Everybody's a leader somewhere, right? So again, it's information. These are little guideposts that, wait a minute, I see what she's doing. I see what he's doing. What makes sense? What's useful? What's helpful? What's authentic, right? So uh, I, I just, I've watched 
the woman, and I can't call her name uh, in New Zealand. Jacinda Ardern, I think. That's the prime minister. Yeah. And I called her the president, the prime minister, right? Just thinking about finding new models of what this can look like and not falling prey to this, this tried and true, well, here's so-and-so who's been around for 30 years, but have you led? Mm-hmm. And young people who are leading. So again, I, I'm, I'm encouraged and I know that I'm sort of pushing beyond the boundaries of the question a bit, but I am encouraged by other modes of leadership that have emerged, I guess I'll say. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree. And I have been um, looking into a lot like um, Prime Minister Jacinda's like her leadership and what she's been doing. And I like like you said, I think it's really interesting to see how she's leading and kind of comparing it to other leaders and ourselves, too, like you said. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So um, the last question that we have from Instagram is from Mira. And she asks, do you think there's anything else that Mercer could be doing to address racism at the university? <laughs> we know the answer to this question we know the answer to this question of course there is of course there is right and I think again I'm going to put it back on the students always faculty we're going to we're going to do what we do you know some will come some will go some will be here for but students are the undercurrent of it all and it's not sort of top down well who's at the Mm -mm, mm-mm mm-mm all of us, number one, we, we answer to you. We mm-hmm. care about you. You're the reason it's all happening. So it makes sense that this is not about some weird top-down model, but it really is about students discovering, wait a minute, what should we be doing? Was it right to erase that mural? Was that the right thing to do? Is this thing X or thing Y the right thing to do? And again, how can we reimagine campus leadership and maybe shake it up a bit so that we have, a, a, again, a different level of accountability, a different level of accessibility. Um, but it, of course, there's more we should be doing. And it wouldn't even make sense for me to sit here and outline what to do. Nope, that's not what, that's not what this is about. This is about you all discovering, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What do we need to do? And how do we take Mercer as our kind of, you know, local community as a kind of incubator. And then again, translate that abroad and not, I don't mean in mission trips and and Mercer on mission, those things are fine, but beyond, again, sort of the confines that have been given to you, how can you sort of assert um, a kind of leadership that makes sense for you? So good questions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, Dr. Prettyman, we just wanted to thank you so much again for being a speaker on our podcast and having this conversation not only with us but with everyone that's listening um and answering all these questions so thank you thank you so thank much you. i know um i was bragging oh no i want to be plenty of time way over time <laughs> hopefully you enjoyed it thank you so much thank you and no don't even worry about it this is all stuff that we needed to hear Good. <laughs> thanks okay.